Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. And please don't forget the donate button, subscribe button, and the email list buttons, all the buttons, because uh, without your donations, we can't do this. Uh, be back in a few seconds to talk about the race for mayor in Detroit with one of the gentlemen running for mayor. Today, we're looking at the upcoming election for mayor of Detroit. The race has national significance, I think, because it pits a progressive candidate, Anthony Adams, against the current mayor who's backed by the Democratic Party establishment, including President Biden. The media has already decided that the current mayor, Duggan, is going to win after he overwhelmingly beat Adams in the Democratic primary in August under Detroit law. The top two winners of the open primary square off in the November election. In that primary, one of the key issues was Proposition P, a list of reforms to the city charter that could have made life better for working families. These included developing free public broadband internet, providing reparations to black residents, changing police practices, policies, and training requirements, giving residents amnesty for water and sewage fees, and granting tax credits for residents who show proof of over-assessed property taxes. Duggan vehemently opposed Proposition P, and Adams was all for it. The vote was 46,711 votes, that is 67% against, and 22,696 votes, that is 32.7%, for it. But here's the rub. There's approximately 500,000 registered voters in Detroit, and only 69,000 or so voted. That's around 14%. This is a city where the majority of the population are workers, and the city is almost 80% black. Why didn't more people vote for Proposition P? This is the challenge for Anthony Adams in the November 2nd election. Can he get black workers to tune in and vote for him, or will people tune out and allow Duggan to be reelected by the Democratic Party machine? I've invited Anthony today, not only because this is an important race, but also because Mayor Duggan has refused to debate Adams, and the Detroit media doesn't think there's a race left to cover. Of course, the media helped make it so as Proposition P was wildly unpopular with the elites of Detroit. So now joining me is Anthony Adams. He was the deputy mayor for the city of Detroit, his executive assistant to Mayor Coleman Young. He was elected Detroit Public Schools Board Education member. He was DPS Board President, Interim Director of the Detroit Water and Sewage Department, and General Counsel for Detroit Public Schools. He's also a principal in the Marine Adams Law Firm, that he runs with his wife, attorney Lynn Marie Adams, and he's got three kids. Uh, so thanks for joining me, Anthony. Thanks for having me. So just a couple of days ago, I guess it was, you actually, I guess, protested or marched outside the governor's house uh, yeah. demanding demanding he debate you. So why did you feel necessary to do that? Because the issues uh, facing Detroit deserve a debate. Here we have a two-term incumbent who who, rule, who runs himself as the guy that fixes problems, 
and yet he won't stand on the stage and defend his record of uh, hurting working class people in the city of Detroit, you know, of not uh, providing relief with respect to taxes. And we've had more than 150,000 people lose their homes as a result of tax foreclosures, uh, who has a policy uh, of shutting water off, who has a policy of providing tax captures and tax abatements for corporations that do not do what they claim they are going to do. And so here he is not debating. So we do what we, what we used to do in the old days. When you went, went in to find someone, you went to the house. You knock on the door and say, hey, come out and let's have a debate. But obviously uh, he didn't come outside. Now, I think also kind of obviously you did it partly because you're not getting that much media attention. And that is a way to get some media attention, which this did. Um, yeah. But wh why does it take a piece of theater to get media attention? Because, the, 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 like you said, the corporate elite, the ruling class, the people who run Detroit uh, through their dark money packs, uh, which are financing attack ads against me, uh, which helped to defeat a proposal P with, with lies and distortions of the truth. Uh, they don't want a public debate on the issues, and they certainly want to keep information suppressed. It's a, it's a, it's a high-level form of voter suppression and that you don't report on something. So if you don't report on it, uh, people tend not to know uh, it's happening. And so we've been using, uh, going through mainstream media, uh, small internet providers, a lot of podcasts, uh, whatever we need to do in order to get our message out, that the victory is right within hand. Uh, given the level of turnout that exists in more than, I think, 40,000 people at this time have not turned in their absentee ballots. And we believe they haven't turned them in because they want additional information about my candidacy. And so we're very aggressive in getting the information out, uh, going door to door, phone banking, uh, doing mailers, and also using uh, internet platforms to get our message out that there is a need for serious change in the city of Detroit. Now, as I said, Detroit is 80% black, and most of that black population are workers, working, working families. Um, the Proposition P proposals would have helped these people quite a bit. Yes, uh, not, you know, Not just free internet, but reparations and, and the other measures. Um, you, you would think that it would be a no-brainer. And, and the other thing is that, you know, to be you know, blunt about it, you know, you're a black candidate. Duggan right. is a white candidate. And typically, black candidates at least do well. I mean, I, I lived in Baltimore uh, for like almost nine, ten years. Okay. And it's a, it, it's an anomaly that a white guy gets elected mayor. It, it happened yeah. once with O'Malley, but that's because several black candidates were very strong and they split the vote. Yeah. But, but normally, so why... You know, like in the prime in the pri in the primary, you did get you did kind of get trounced. So what's going on? Yeah, I mean, but you know, like you said, you're only talking about 14 percent of the people. And the reality is that you know he is a two-term incumbent. This guy is extremely well financed. Uh, he has a lot of black uh, ministers supporting him. Uh, he trots out a lot of black uh, people who endorse him and make him legitimate. And so part of what I'm fighting through is, I think, a recognition that black people need to understand that we can actually represent ourselves. With the problems that we had in the past with black leadership, with the contrived bankruptcy, uh, which stripped away political control uh, from the city uh, to the governor and her emergency manager, uh, there was a toxic mix, I think, of, of diminution of black value and really people just being fed up and tired. Plus, we also have to realize that this, is, this still is a COVID environment. 
And people in the city of Detroit are simply just trying to survive. And so when you're talking high-level issues that really can impact their lives, they're trying to figure out how they're going to keep the lights on, how they're going to pay their water bill, how they're going to pay their taxes, how they're going to stay in their house, how they're going to drive without insurance. All these are bread and butter issues which drag people's, I think, interest in elections down. But I think we're doing a great job of motivating the people who we need to motivate in order to come out to vote. The very people that you talk about, working class black women who make up the predominant voting block in the city. Uh, those are the folks that we're speaking to. We're speaking to their issues about the proposal P approach to things. How do we have an affordable water policy? How do we have an affordable housing policy? How do we provide reparations? How do we deal with overtaxations? These are issues. How do we provide child care? These are issues that working class, in particular, working class women uh, need to hear. And I think our message is starting to resonate. I think something you just mentioned is probably really the key to the whole thing. Uh, and that is black churches. And especially if you're targeting black women, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a large proportion of black women are involved in church life. Yes. And if you can't, you know, if you're going to really break through again, I know from Baltimore, you got to break through to the black clergy. Um, and, and, and at least in the primaries so far, I, it doesn't seem you've been able to, and I, and the democratic party machine, is usually very strong there. Uh, like you look, I mean, Biden won his nomination because of the strength of the Democratic Party and the black churches. So how are you going to buck this? Well, they're going to they're going to really be in for a rude awakening because there's a lot of discontent uh, in the ranks with respect to the Democratic Party and Democratic policies. Uh, people are, are really, really very, very frustrated um, with our governor. Uh, her inability to somehow or another address major issues impacting the people who live in the city of Detroit. Uh, there really is a lot of frustration with respect to Joe Biden and his policies, his inability to really adopt a very progressive agenda uh, seems to be stalled, uh, you know, in Congress and they don't get any movement there. And part of what they don't understand is that you can't turn the machinery on and off when you want to. And so when it was a presidential election, obviously people showed out to vote, not because of the Democratic Party, but because Trump was such a horrible person that people clearly understood that and needed to come out to vote. And they did. Uh, in record numbers. And now we face with a different, more subtle type of Trump uh, attitude and approach. And you've got to begin to dissect that, clearly working through the churches. And I do have some support in churches. I visited a ton of churches in the city of Detroit. I know a lot of pastors, but when you're dealing with a cycle of fear in the community, the fact that the city was awarded more than $850 million in federal money, and he's been promising, promising, promising pastors every, any and everything. And I told them if they add up the level of the promises that he made them, what they'll figure out is that there just simply isn't enough money to go around to meet and honor the commitments that he's making. And so he's really playing a shell game, very sophisticated shell game. But we're going to break through that because our message is right. What we're talking about is is good for the people who actually live in the city of Detroit. And I'm I'm confident that on November the 2nd at 11 o'clock, when they announce the result of this race, that a great political victory will be won for the people. Uh, you mentioned the governor. Uh, the governor actually tried to keep Proposition P, if I understand it correctly, off yes. the the just to make it clear that the vote for Proposition P was on the same uh, ballot as the primary in August, but the governor yeah. tried to keep it off the ballot and it took the Michigan Supreme Court to put it on. What, what happened there? 
Well, what happened was that there was, again, after you had more than 500 organizations citywide that participated in a charter amendment process uh, going over a two-year period, the people, the, the charter commissioners voted out a charter, uh, which the mayor's office didn't even participate in the process. And so when you talk about a level of arrogance of what we, who we're dealing with here, this is what you're dealing with, a high-handed, arrogant uh, Democrat who doesn't think that the people's word means a damn thing. You couple that with a governor who was afraid of the mayor, uh, and so she blocks the move, even though by law she really couldn't block it. And they took an act of a of the Supreme Court, which is a 43 Democratic majority, to overrule the governor's refusal to put this simple measure on the ballot. And then, obviously, with their dark money packs, well-funded uh, by the corporate interest in our community, they were able to trot out some black folks to say this is bad for the city of Detroit. And if you tell a lie long enough, people actually will believe it. And that's exactly what happened here. But the truth of the matter is that the people who we really need to reach, the people who are being impacted by the policies that proposal piece sought to remedy, those are the people that we need to speak to. Those are the people that we need to get out to vote. And those are the people that are going to lead me uh, to victory in this upcoming race. Uh, and during that fight over the Proposition P, that was the threat, I guess, that it would put Detroit back into bankruptcy. And I guess that would scare people some. But do you have any idea who's this, who is the dark money? Well, you know, there's been some inkling that it's been financed in part by uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Michigan. Uh, Dan Gilbert has been a favorite financer of a lot of the dark pack monies. Dan Gilbert, who's got more than two and a half billion dollars uh, in public subsidies uh, to practically acquire all the property in downtown Detroit. This is the uh, guy who owns Quicken Loans. Is that right? Quicken Loans. Right. He is the big he's the big kahuna. But he's, uh, he's, a, a, he's, a, he's normally a Trump supporter. Is that correct? Well, he is a Trump supporter, which is the irony here is that he's a Trump supporter, but he's also supporting Mike Duggan. And so you go figure. And then you have a, a, a mayor who surrounded himself with Republicans, recently appointed a high level Republican to his staff. And so the question is, who's the real who's the real Democrat here? And his father was also appointed as a federal judge by Ronald Reagan. So when you look at his roots, they're deep in the Republican Party. And so he plays this chameleon game because obviously in Wayne County, you can't get elected to anything if you're Republican. You have to be a Democrat. So he plays the shell game and changes his skin, but he can't change his tune. The reality is that his policies are ineffective to attacking systemic racism, unlining dealing with the issues of crime. He never speaks to these issues because he's very uncomfortable uh, in the culture that he's seeking uh, to, to govern. Now, you've got a history of, of having various offices, as I outlined in the introduction. Uh, is, are you at all seen by ordinary black workers as, a, as somewhat part of the machine yourself? I think there could be some perception like that. But when you look at my record of commitment to working on progressive issues, whether it's working with Michigan welfare rights uh, and, and landlord tenant protection, protecting tenants from being evicted from their homes, whether it's working with the uh, ACLU and issues of water rights and water affordability, whether it's uh, being very active in my church and my social justice ministry aimed at providing expungement fairs, uh, job fairs and job trainings. I have a very progressive background in the things that I've actually worked on. And I think it's that background is really starting to come through and those organizations who I've worked with are starting to stand up and speak out about my progressive bona fides. 
I'm the most progressive candidate that probably has ever run for the city of Detroit. When you talk about the need to create affordable housing policy, how do we do that? How do we restrict uh, the, the award of tax captures and tax abatements to large corporations that strip money away from our community? You know, how do we create uh, immigrant bill of rights in, in our city to make sure that we aren't participating with ICE with respect to the deporting people uh, back uh, to, their, to their countries? Very progressive policies, very progressive views about life. And so I am the progressive, even though I've worked in government, uh, my policies and ideas clearly reflect. And you can look at my platform. It talks about the policies that, that I really support and want to promote when I become mayor of the city of Detroit. So I guess part of what you're up against is in the community in general, but as I said, 80% of the city's black. Uh, the mayor, as you kind of uh, inferred, he gets to give away a lot of money. And if you want some, you don't want to piss that guy off. No, and and you if don't. you run an NGO or, 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 you know, even in the churches and all yeah. kinds of all kinds of uh, organizations want to tap into that municipal money. Uh, so, so that's a bit of a juggernaut to take on. Yeah, but the question is, how much have they gotten? You see, I'm a, I'm a realist, and I like to speak to real issues. And so when they tell me that they're afraid, I say, you're afraid of what? You haven't gotten anything with respect to his promises over the last eight years. What's the lead you to believe that another four years of his administration is going to give you anything different other than what you got? And oftentimes, people want to fool themselves into believing something that's going to be good. It's sort of like being uh, in a bad marriage with, with an abusive spouse. You, you kind of want it to work, but it's not going to work. And so you need to go ahead. You don't have to be a rah-rah, shish cheer me on type person, but clearly you need to be talking with to your parishioners about issues that are impacting them and how they can see a better life for themselves. I'm the only candidate that's talked about how we help young men and young women who are at risk improve the quality of their life, the types of programming that are much more proactive in policing versus reactive. You know, we have a reactive police force. They react to things. I'm saying that's old school. We have to be much more progressive in going out and intervening and bringing these young men and women in and sitting down, talking with them, not in a confrontational manner, but how can we actually help you get your life together? The root cause of crime is, is clearly tied to poverty and lack of education opportunities. And so when I talk about people, when I talk about this, they say, well, how are you going to do it? I say, well, we got to do it this way because we spent more than $3 billion in the city that's cash-strapped fighting crime over the last eight years. And we still have the highest crime rate uh, that we've ever had. And so this requires a radical transformation of how we think, how we act, what we do, and how we spend our resources. And I believe that because I believe in the goodness of man that the people want to change their lives. Sometimes they just need some assistance in doing that. If we commit to that, to a very aggressive program of intervention, job training, educational training, uh, providing a stipend if need be in order to help people get through the transition period from living a life of crime to being a productive citizen, I think we can do great things in transforming our city. Uh, you know, again, from having lived in Baltimore, uh, I, I learned that, at least I thought, that there's kind of two parts to this, is reforming the police and then, of course, the economic issues of chronic mm -hmm. poverty. And, yes. and certainly, you know, chronic poverty is 
there because it's actually profitable. There's a lot of businesses that benefit from people desperate to work and willing to work at the lowest possible wage. Yes. Uh, and, and so it's not an accident uh, that, that there is chronic poverty. The system actually right. benefits from it. I should say the elites benefit from it. Yeah, so so there's a set of economic issues. But when you get to the policing issue, uh, one of the demands I know that's been talked in a lot of cities, and and in fact, I think at one point Detroit even had a model for this, which is community control of the police. Uh, what's your what's your what's the history of that in Detroit, and what's your position on it? So obviously, you know, with the charter that we operate under now, we have what is supposed to be an independent uh, elected police commission. Uh, but they seem to be nothing more than a rubber stamp of the mayor because they, they appear to have been co-opted by the past chief of police who's now running as a Republican for governor, I might add, uh, which is an interesting dichotomy there. And so they really lost the level of independence that they need in order to do what they need to do, which is provide civilian oversight of the police department. And that's a oh, charter. Okay. Let me interrupt for a sec. Wasn't it previously even originally more than oversight? Didn't it actually have some kind of management? Like it actually had some control features to it, not just oversight. They had, they're not, not really. I mean, when you look at how the Detroit Board of Police Commissioners has been established, uh, they have not had direct management oversight responsibility. This is not similar to what, for example, you have in Chicago, where you have sort of an independent apparatus that can actually order corrective action within the police department. Uh, by, by charter, uh, they have some level of authority, but they've chosen not to exercise that. And they've, in fact, begin to cede more and more authority back uh, to the mayor's office for control because they simply are tools and pawns of, of the mayor's administration. So how would you change that? Well, I think one is you've got to you've got to in, in, you've got to have people on that commission who actually understand that their role is to be an independent voice uh, in the community. We don't need people rubber stamping decisions from me. We actually need a check and balance uh, in the process. And I think we need to we need to devote resources to in order to support those types of program, that type of thinking. I think we also have to uh, embed within the police department itself, I think, a certain level of respect for independent thought. You know, the police department is a paramilitary organization and people tend to stick together. And if you try to operate outside those constraints, then there is no pathway for you to move up in the hierarchy. So how do we identify at very young stages in their career people who have the level of independence, uh, but, the, but a level of independence in order to help assist in moving an agent agency forward? which is why I've advocated for uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. I said, in order to really transform the police department, some young people actually need to go inside and become police officers, and you kind of change things from within. It's not, it's, you can't get the level of change that you want uh, by protesting outside the police department. You've got to go inside the department. You've got to become police officers, and then you've got to have somebody on the other end who's supportive of your policies and, and empowers people to do what they need to do. Would you support the civilian uh, commission, uh, if that's what it's called, actually having the power to hire and fire the police chief? I think that the chief of police needs to somehow or another be tied uh, to the mayor. 
um, because the mayor often will be blamed for crime in his community. And so I think they need to have uh, they need to have a good relationship and understanding as to what my desires are, how I like to police. For example, I'm not one to want to spend any time on low level drug crimes, drug possession, things of that nature. I think it's a it's a waste of resources. I think a lot of that could be handled sort of administratively with tickets or referrals for treatment. I don't think we need to spend time doing that. Uh, conversely, things like um, uh, sex, uh, prostitution, street prostitution, you know, how do we help women, you know, change and transform their lives to move away from that? Because it becomes a neighborhood quality of life issue in certain communities. How do we change our approach to that? Uh, but when we talk about major crime, uh, rape, robbery, murder, uh, we have to be about the business of solving those crimes because they impact the safety of our community. And I think the chief and the mayor need to be aligned on policy uh, because at the end of the day, the mayor is going to be responsible for what goes on in the city. But the problem with that is, let's assume you win on November 2nd when, for, the sake, for, for the sake of argument. Uh, you might not win, you know, four years, eight years. Uh, you know, you might have another Duggan. So then you're going to get a police chief that Duggan, another Duggan likes. Whereas if you have an elective civilian board that gets to hire the police chief and fire if necessary, at least that it gives some uh, protection to the community, uh, regardless of who mayor is. Well, I think the protection of the community obviously is in electing a mayor who's supportive of their policies and make sure that things are done in the right way. I mean, and we're not going to necessarily agree on every facet of how the city should operate, but I think that particular fa aspect of operation, there needs to be a connection between the mayor uh, and the and the and the chief of police because he's taking direction and orders from the city uh, with respect to how he should do his job. Okay, so in terms of the economic policies, uh, this you know, chronic poverty is not going to be solved by job training alone. There's no, been lots of not. attempts in job training and it it doesn't go very far. I agree. Um, and, and certainly there needs to be something very seriously done about public schools because uh, in all the inter -Amer American inner cities, uh, public schools, particularly in poor black areas, are, are awful. And it's, it's to do with, I know in Baltimore, I assume it's the same in Detroit, is that it's not only the under-resourced, but because yeah. of the consequences of poverty, they get a much higher percentage of, of students that have special needs, yeah. which is exp which is expensive. And so, you know, the resources go to that. Where in the wealthier neighborhoods, they don't have to spend the same kind of money on special needs students. So, so to what extent is the mayor able to deal with that? Well, I think you know. First of all, you got to understand you know the structure of educational financing. In the city of Detroit, you know, we have we have a foundation allowance that the state grants each district. So each district, at least at one level, is treated the same because they all receive the same foundation alliance. Uh, but when they when they attack the unconstitutionality of how education was funded in Michigan, there's a little glitch there which allows uh, richer districts uh, to still capture some level of property tax that they can apply to their school systems in order to provide additional services. And the theory is that with the foundation allowances and with categorical grants that the school districts receive, 
that the imbalance between what school districts like Detroit get in terms of their special needs population, they, are, they should be able to get more, but they don't. They don't get what they need. And the foundation allowance approach, while it, it appears to be equal across the board, the needs of each district are not equal. And that's a funding formula that really needs to be adjusted, I think, weighted to address the issues that impact the children in the city of Detroit. So I, I just let me get clear. You're saying that some neighborhoods can get some of the property some tax, school districts, but, some but, school de districts but Detroit, inner, inner city Detroit cannot? Well, when you look at the percentage of what Detroit can collect from its property taxes versus other districts with the low valuations and assessments in the property, it doesn't yield what it doesn't yield a lot of money. And so it, it looks on paper that everybody's being treated equally and the same, but the reality is that the numbers simply don't work out. So if you've got a small, you got a city like Birmingham, Michigan, which has very high property tax assessments, if the average home in, in Birmingham is $450,000, if they're taking one to two meals of that four fifty, dollars it's a big hit. But in Detroit, the average value is forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. One meal, two meals isn't going to generate uh, what we need to generate in order to address those issues. And so I have worked with some organizations that I really tried to attack the educational funding issue because we understand that crime is a direct product in many parts of not having uh, adequate education. And then when you couple that with high levels of lead, uh, high levels of air pollution in the community, uh, issues that are impacting health, uh, stress uh, and living in the urban area, all these things make it, from my perspective, a public a health issue, and we should be treated as such with the wraparound services that we need in the schools, as well as in the house with the parent. You know, we can't attack poverty by simply educating the children. We also have to deal with the inadequacy of income of the parents. If we have parents, the average income is $27,000, $28,000, and they have to catch a bus to work, that means they're leaving the house sometimes at four o'clock in the morning. Who's watching the children? Who makes sure that the children get to school on time? All these things intersect and need to be talked about and addressed because if we don't talk about them, then there's no way in the world that we're ever going to come up with a solution to attack the underlying issue of, of, of the major issue of structural racism, of the deindustrialization de of Detroit, which was not caused by the people who lived in the city. It was caused by the corporate uh, leadership of the state, uh, which severely failed the people who live uh, in, in, our, in our state. And so we've seen the we've seen the impact of that because at one time Detroit had 700,000 manufacturing jobs. It might have it might have 10,000. You're talking about a huge gap between loss, the industrialization of the city, uh, the loss of population, greatest population loss of any city in the in America. We lost more than a million people. And so when you start staggering these things, bad old housing, bad infrastructure, um, poor economic policy, which is not designed to enhance the community of the people, but the corporate interests, you end up with what we have here in our city. Uh, do you have any ability to raise more revenue through some forms of taxation, either on corporate or wealthy individuals? I think no, because the way that it's set up in Michigan, the income primary, the, the majority of the income in this generating state of Michigan actually flows up to the state and then they return back to cities by way of formula, a formula approach to make it appear fair. Um, there are some some revenue additional issues. For example, people can't actually vote additional taxes on themselves, but we're overtaxed. <laughs> we're overtaxed right now. We need to be trying to reduce the level of, of taxation uh, in our city. 
Yeah, but wait a but wait a sec. You would uh, on everybody or on on working families because you might want to be looking at raising the taxes on people that can afford it. They don't allow for differentiation. Unlike the federal tax code, we can't differentiate. I mean, there is a percentage that's set on what the city can collect from people that actually earn wages, and we don't have any ability that will require a change in state law. I'm talking on property taxes. Can't you increase? Property- like no, in, San, in San in San Francisco, they had a on they had a special hike on land transfer taxes, and right. they used that to help pay for free college education. I believe it was. Uh, do, do you control the land transfer tax? No, it's controlled by the state. They actually set those rates. So when we talk about what the city doesn't have, you, you, every opportunity for the city to raise revenue is captured at the state level. Well, it sounds like it sounds like you should be running for governor then, or somebody <laughs> should be, because uh, there's such state control. Like for example, I know one of the ideas that's been floated, which always made sense to me is that there should be direct hiring by the city in poor neighborhoods, train people to re- renovate and refurbish houses. And yes. the, the housing values go up, people learn a trade, uh, and you create employment, uh, but you, of course, will need some funding to do that, to create such a program. Well, see, I, I'm, I maintain the argument that there's money there. That when you look at the allocation of affordable housing dollars in the city of Detroit, when you look at the fact that the Michigan State Housing Development Authority, which is the largest, supposed to be the largest affordable housing lender in the state, and they do very little lending in the city of Detroit. And they're sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars in reserves that can be used to fix up housing in the city of Detroit. But because it's being controlled by Lansing, those dollars are never seen to be uh, freed up to do what they need to do in the city. And then when you have a mayor whose policy is to take the affordable housing dollars, put them in mixed income developments in downtown, and then use an average median income to claim that these units are affordable, and yet people in the city of Detroit, most people need a three or four bedroom. They're not trying to live in the studio or one or two bedroom apartment in downtown Detroit where the average rent might be fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500. If you're only making $27,000, you can't afford to pay more than 50, 50% of your income for housing. But yet, that's what's happening in our city. We have people that are working poor stress. They're stressed because their rent is high, because we have the lowest level of home ownership. We had 47% home ownership, and we used to be at 85%. More than 150,000 people have lost their homes as a result of tax foreclosure. We have 40,000 people on the list today who are subject to tax foreclosure, and many of those people shouldn't even be paying taxes to begin with because of exemptions or exclusions that exist under state law. So when you're talking about helping working class people, we need to be trying to figure out how we can change the tax structure to reduce that the property tax burden clearly needs to be reduced, but also the income tax burden. And those things uh, have generated uh, some income for the city, but we need to take a look at those things. Well, well, I got two questions here. Let me think which one I should do first. Uh, well, let's well let's just quick question. So all these foreclosures, uh, who's who's buying up all these properties once they're foreclosed? Foreign investors, foreign investors from China, Singapore, the you know the Middle East, you name it. They're coming in. They're they're snatching up property in Detroit, uh, sight unseen. They're buying 100, 200, 300 blocks of houses. Um, that's what they're doing. And so the irony of it is the city benefits from those taxes being being paid. When Because if it's foreclosed, 
the taxes have to be paid. The city then gets the revenue for the foreclosed houses that they forego because they couldn't collect it as a result of regular process. My position is I don't care. If we got people losing their homes, losing their homes and becoming renters, to me, it's a much better policy to stop transferring property to the Wayne County Treasurer for tax foreclosure, manage that process with our taxpayers ourselves so that we aren't creating uh, and allowing people to lose generational wealth that they've built up over, over 30 and 40 years. The people that are being harmed by these policies are people uh, who've been in their homes. They've lived in their homes. They've fallen on hard times. They can't pay their taxes. And yet there's no consideration for them to how we figure out how we keep you in your home. The best blight removal strategy that we have is to keep people in their homes, but they don't seem to understand that. Well, I think you'd, if you combine that with an employment program based on renovating and refer, retrofitting, uh, that would keep people in their homes and, and in much better homes. The other thing with all this property being bought by offshore money, uh, I, one should look at how many of those transactions are essentially cash transactions. Because I know in Toronto, a lot of this property purchasing is money laundering. And it wouldn't surprise me that's the same thing going on in Detroit. Well, you know, that's that's like a whole nother level of analysis and all that money comes through the Wayne County Treasurer. We really aren't privy to who the investors are. Only we, you know, we find out anecdotally when we look at the property tax records and see that there are foreign investors with shell corporations and the money changes hand quickly in the wire transfer. I mean, it's a very sophisticated process of exploitation of people, especially of working class people. And but it's, but it's also maybe a, a kind of collaboration between the state and money laundering. Yeah, if, um, I, I would, I would, I would agree with you on that point. It's it's worth looking into. Let me get back to my my next question. Then, uh, are you in favor of taking a chunk of the police budget and then putting it into, for example, a direct employment program? Yes. How would you do it? Well, you know, again, when I talked about some of the things that I talked about earlier about my community intervention force. Uh, that that is exactly what that means. It, it entails that we hiring. We can, for example, when we talk about gang intervention specialists, the only person who can talk to a gang person is a former gang person. And so, how do we then put those types of folks on the payroll, provide with it the income to provide the level of outreach and input and contact with the people that we need to reach? That is a reasonable use of dollars that are allocated to the police budget in order to help us do what we need to do. How do we program and then provide training? I think because we have a separate uh, entity that handles job training, which gets to hundreds of millions of dollars in federal grants, we have the resources available. It doesn't necessarily all have to come out of the police budget. And I think a portion of the services do directly come from the police department. And we need to use that those dollars in a manner that's going to put people on the payroll who can help us reduce the level of crime in our city. So where is UAW in this election? Uh, you would think the UAW should be supporting you. Uh, uh, they, 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 in theory, support some of the or most of the demands you're talking about. Uh, are they? Well, no, they're not. Uh, and But we have to understand the history of the UAW. The, they used to really stand for a lot more than they do now, I think. Um, and when you look at the leadership and the issues that they've had themselves, 
Uh, they were under federal indictment, federal investigation. The president pled guilty. Multiple officers pled guilty. You know, they've now been effectively being supervised uh, by someone outside of their leadership structure. You know, they have a monitor who m watches their every move. And there's a move now afoot to sort of democratize uh, the, the UAW having direct election uh, of their president and their officers versus this proportional union agent representative structure. Uh, I think if we had a different structure, they would be supporting me wholeheartedly. But given the, the old structure and the fact that they had their own legal issues and they needed certain, uh, I think, relief from Joe Biden, uh, they kind of play, they play, they, they're playing ball, no doubt about it. So what do you make of Joe Biden and his support of Duggan? I mean, Biden was promising to be the most progressive president since FDR. Uh, and he can claim, uh, to some extent, truthfully, that it's not so difficult to pass everything in D.C. Uh, and, you know, with Joe Manchin from West Virginia and so on and so on. But that doesn't explain supporting such status quo in Detroit. Well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, everybody wants to blame Joe Manchin and the senator from uh, Arizona. I said, but the reality is this, we all understand politics in D.C. You only get so many cracks at the apple in terms of your ability to transform things. And so from my perspective, you know, what he should have done was figured out exactly what was the most important thing that needed to be passed and spent his political capital on that. Uh, and I think he, he kind of missed the mark. He, he went off on some some other tangents and did some other things. And now the more money you spend, obviously, the more uh, obstructionist that the Republicans are going to be, even though they gave away billions of dollars in tax cap tax cuts, which they shouldn't have, which could have been used to fuel our economy. Biden is out of touch with what's going on in Detroit. No question about it, because if he understood the real impact of his uh, endorsees policies, I think he would have ran like like the plague away from him. But they're old Democratic guys. They're, they're, they, they really cut from the same cloth. Um, and we you know I, I expected that. It's not going to deter me. And the people who are going to, who are going to vote for me aren't going to be deterred uh, because Joe Biden said that he's supporting my opponent. So uh, Detroit is, you know, Democrat, a Democratic Party, uh, but people have to come out to vote. And Detroit, but Detroit is surrounded by a lot of Michigan that voted for Trump and, and, and might well again. Uh, what's your take on where, you know, sort of Michigan is outside of Detroit and what might be coming in 2022 and 2024 and, and, and what should be done about it? It, 2024 is going to be a very, very difficult race uh, in Michigan, in Detroit. Uh, the influence, of the, 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 I think the control that Trump has over the party, and he still exercises a considerable amount of control. People are fatigued by COVID restrictions. They're just tired of it. They're tired of government telling them what to do. Now I have to get a vaccine, even though, you know, when you and I were growing up, vaccines were mandatory and nobody was, we didn't have this anti-vaxxer movement. Uh, we probably had some of it, but not as prevalent today. And so, they, they, you know, we're currently going through a redistricting phase uh, where they, they, there was a vote of the people to take the redistricting away from the state legislature, something that I never thought would pass. And now it's in the hands of an independent redistricting commission. But now you have black uh, politicians in the state complaining that the maps were not drawn properly to ensure a black representation uh, in the city. And I found that ironic. And I actually sent a tweet. I said, I find it ironic that you would complain about black people voting when you've done absolutely nothing to 
promote uh, an election, a mayoral election in the city of Detroit. You know, there's kind of one hand can't feed the other, which is my point. We can't turn this button on and off to get people motivated. If you're going to be progressive and effective, you have to keep people motivated and keep them engaged in the process. Uh, the other irony of Detroit being depopulated uh, is the fact that now we have uh, we have majority we have cities that where there was never a large presence of black people. And so when you look at Harper Woods or East Point, uh, Westland, cities where black folks never lived, they now live and they're changing the face of the electoral politics of these cities. And so you've got, for example, the first black mayor of East Point ever. Uh, you've got a black judge that was appointed out in, in Harper Woods. So you see the impact of black people moving out of the city and impacting the politics uh, in the region. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a tough race because people are fragmented and people are disappointed. They're disappointed that we can't push through the types of real progressive legislation that we need, uh, that we have with FDR. To him, to him to compare himself to FDR, you know, that's a, that's a stretch. But the FDR's battles didn't all come at one time. You know, the guy was elected, what, four times, I think. So he was able to create a progressive record. And it wasn't without fight, fighting the Supreme Court and the court packing cases. I mean, there's a lot of dynamics in that that people need to understand from a historical perspective. You know, what happens in Michigan in terms of the 2024 election, whether it's Trump or somebody like Trump, because it's going to be one or the other on the Republican side, uh, what progressives do in Michigan, and I don't mean just Detroit, uh, it's going to be very significant nationally. Are progressives getting organized to actually go and talk to and organize amongst the white working class of r rural Michigan? No, no, they, 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 they've been real sit, sit on the hand. You know, when you have a guy like me uh, who have a very progressive agenda, most of the progressive organizations have chosen not to take a position on the mayor's race, in part because a lot of the leadership of some of the progressive organizations actually come out of the Democratic Party machinery. And so understanding how the old boy work network works, are they simply not getting engaged in this process? And I think it's, it's hurting their credibility, uh, first and foremost. I think, you know, you have you have some organizations that are trying to do the legwork, but this is this is work that requires the commitment of resources and dollars on the ground. Everybody likes to rave about what happened in Georgia. But when you listen to Stacey Abrams, she'll tell you that was a 10 year process. It didn't just happen overnight. And if you don't do the legwork, you don't spend the money. The one thing I give the Republicans credit is that they continuously push their issues and their agendas and their candidates. They're creating candidates. They have their candidate forms. They do what they need to do in order to keep a lot of fresh blood in the process. The Democrats don't do as good of a job. Uh, I think they need to reform how they approach uh, politics. And they need to be much more directed to grassroots empowerment. But then when you're looking at a democratic structure, you're looking at a top-down approach. And what we're talking about is how do you govern from the bottom up? How do you empower the people who you need to when you need them to vote to get out and do what they need to do? A top-down philosophy is, is risky from my perspective. Well, you can't, I think, expect anything else from corporate Democrats because that's that's who they are. But but progressives had better get organized to to do what you're saying, and not just in the city, but across the state. Otherwise, who knows? Michigan could wind up really, you know, a real Trump state. Well, we have a we have a big test, obviously, next year with with the governor's race. 
Uh, you have a governor uh, who is well-funded, well-financed. Um, you have Republican challenges, particularly the former black chief police of, of, of Detroit is running as a Trump Republican and just recently went to visit Trump. And so, and you have a, I always have historically a huge militia movement uh, in the state of Michigan, uh, far right wing uh, groups that agitate and don't, that will believe in showing force. They marched on the Capitol with arms uh, and made a big show of it. So we, we've got, we got to understand we're in the balance here. We're in the balance politically, uh, we're in the balance socially, and we certainly, the progressives need to be much more engaged in getting to the people who they need to get to because the irony of it is poor working class people are being crushed in the same policies as poor black people. We're all in the same boat. We're all getting crushed to grapes, and they're drinking the wine from that process. Hmm. All right. Well, November 2nd, good luck. Anthony Adams running for mayor. Let me extend an invitation to Mayor Duggan if he'd like to come on and be interviewed or preferably actually have a debate with uh, Anthony. Uh, be happy, happy to host it. Of course, I won't hold my breath. Uh, thanks again, Anthony. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate the time. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Again, please don't forget the donate button and subscribe and share. And all the buttons. Thanks again.